0: Hi, I'm Helene Gale, President and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. Welcome back to another episode of Trust Talks. A recent analysis of Chicago news coverage found that 90% of local media mentioned north side and downtown locations in the majority of their coverage compared to just 19% that mentioned south side locations in a majority of their coverage and 5% that mentioned west side locations. Crime, which Chicago residents rank as one of the top issues facing their neighborhoods, was mentioned more frequently in articles referencing west side locations than articles referencing the north side and downtown areas, indicating that the only time people heard about certain neighborhoods is in relation to crime or public safety challenges. Other categories like transportation, and the environment, which are also top issues for Chicago residents, received comparatively less coverage. A core strand of the trust's strategic focus to close the Chicago region's racial and ethnic wealth gap at the household, neighborhood, and community levels is building collective power. This strategy is centered on the very simple idea that residents need to be connected to one another to develop an agenda that is important to them and be put in a position to advance their agenda. A core component of this strategy is the Media Makers Initiative, which aims to one, expand opportunities for hyperlocal, ethnic, and community centered news organizations to partner with community members to develop editorial content that represents resident driven issues, two, to create content sharing opportunities that engage new media partnerships and expand existing media networks, and finally, Build the capacity of hyperlocal, ethnic, and community-centered media organizations, specifically as it relates to functions that increase community engagement around important civic issues. Since 2020, the Trust has supported 12 organizations through the Media Makers Initiative with more than 1.4 million in grants. In this episode of Trust Talks, hear from the members of our Media Makers Network who are authentically reflecting the individual and collective voice, narrative, and stories that are deeply
1: rooted in our communities. Welcome to episode four of Trust Talks. I'm Daniel Ash, Associate Vice President at the Chicago Community Trust. I have the pleasure of leading the Building Collective Power Strategy, which is one of four core strategies aimed at closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap in the Chicago region. Our work simultaneously focuses on four fronts. One, address pressing and critical needs. Two, grow household wealth by increasing income, reducing debt, and driving towards home and business ownership. Three, accelerate and catalyze investment in Black and Latinx neighborhoods. And four, create the conditions for Black and Latinx people in Chicago to gain greater decision-making powers as it relates to the issues affecting their communities. We call this front building collective power. A few assumptions guide this strategy. First, closing the racial wealth gap requires more than economic interventions in Black and Latinx communities. Second, investing in Black and Latinx communities must involve investments in in existing infrastructure of disenfranchised communities. Third, the collective civic power of Black and Latinx residents must be centered in order to ensure that any progress benefits them. And finally, a key aspect to centering Black and Latinx residents in the movement for change is supporting journalism, storytelling, and community engagement that is grounded in their truth. I'm honored to have four people who are doing this work with us. Each represents an organization currently supported through the Building Collective Power Strategy. You'll hear from Tanika Lewis-Johnson, a social justice artist and creator of the acclaimed Folded Map Project, and Morgan Johnson, one half of the duo that created The Tribe, a digital media platform that's reshaping the narrative of Black Chicago, and Jesus Del Toro, General manager of La Raza, Chicago's leading Spanish language news publication. But first, we'll hear from Lolly Bowen, the award winning journalist who now leads the media and storytelling grant making for the Field Foundation of Illinois. Welcome, Lolly.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Lolly, I would like to begin with you telling us more about the Field Foundation's commitment to shoring up local media by supporting community media, and I would love to hear you speak to how that work serves to build power at the community level.
2: Yes. So the Field Foundation has long invested in local media and storytelling. In fact, the Field family had a hand in funding and creating the Chicago Sun Times some time ago. For the 80-year history of the Field Foundation, the organization has supported uh, local media and storytelling, usually within the arts portfolio. But to give you some history, in 2019, with the help of some unique partnerships, including the MacArthur Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and now we're happy to count the Chicago Community Trust as a partner, the Field Foundation started this new portfolio, which is devoted solely to funding this work. The portfolio was created to tackle both the news and information deserts that existed within communities in Chicago and to address this fake news rhetoric that kind of blanketed our country by ensuring that local residents had robust and reliable news sources where they could turn to for information. You asked about how it uh, builds power. In many ways, the vision is to shore up the local media ecosystem by shifting power from the big players into empowering local, small grassroots storytelling organizations, and even digital media organizations and newspapers, and ensuring that they have a place in the media ecosystem and that they have the support that they need to continue much of the work that they have been doing with very small budgets. The funding strategy um, centers on investing in communities that have been overlooked, both by philanthropic investment and by the mainstream media. The research uh, that we rely on to support this portfolio was um, done by uh, the newsroom leader and award-winning journalist, Susan Smith Richardson. This was a vision that she helped to create, um, scaffolding that she was the architect of to ensure that we were pouring dollars into Black, Latino, Indigenous communities in Chicago. Her research found that there was a $60 million shortfall media organizations that were led by black latino indigenous and people of color um, communities in the chicago region the year that it was um, founded we've distributed about one million dollars and in the two years since it's been followed we've distributed nearly two million dollars to organizations uh, like la raza the chicago crusader the tribe um, and even podcasts uh, just to ensure that different voices uh, throughout the chicago region are again empowered and able to tell the stories of communities um, in a a big and uh,
1: important way. I would love for you to share a few examples of organizations that are in your portfolio that are now being funded.
2: One that I'm really proud to say that we have funded is the Chicago Crusader. That's an organization that has been around uh, serving the Black community with news and investigative reporting for 80 years. And it never received any type of support from the philanthropic community in part because it's not a nonprofit; is a for-profit African-American newspaper. And so in many ways, its history of service was appealing to field because it serves a community that has historically been overlooked by the mainstream media. It's located on the south side um, in the heart of Washington Park slash Woodlawn. Uh, So it's located in a community that has been uh, long overlooked by philanthropy and philanthropic investments. But because they were a for-profit, for most uh, philanthropies and foundations, they historically had always been overlooked and kind of told that they didn't fit because they they didn't meet the quote-unquote criteria. Well, for Field, we've adjusted our grant-making model specifically so organizations like that can fit.
1: Lolly, you are, as noted before, a journalist working now in philanthropy. I would love for you to share how community-centered, hyper-local sort of media platforms impacted your work as a journalist. And do you still see that type of impact happening today in the local sort of ecosystem where you have large players, large regional platforms, as well as the smaller, hyperlocal neighborhood-centered platforms?
2: Oh, absolutely. I worked for more than 15 years at the Chicago Tribune, um, and I considered myself an old school community journalist focused on writing about neighborhoods, both within Chicago and in the surrounding region of Chicago, and trying to make the lives and experiences of people um, throughout our community make sense to each other. And as a reporter, I often relied on the smaller media organizations to tell me what was going on and either affirm what I was sensing was happening or to um, help me see issues in a new way. One example that I can think of kind of more specifically is uh, there was a lot of reporting I noticed that was done at the sort of microjournalism level on um, Jamal Cole and his work with My Hood, My Block, My City. He would get some coverage in um, smaller publications because of the work that he was doing first in Chatham and then in the surrounding neighborhoods on the South Side. Well, what I realized eventually is that he was a part of a larger movement, a larger strategy of community um, engaged residents who were working to rebrand the South Side. And so I was able to do a story about that and that whole movement. And the only reason I knew about Jamal Cole is because of the coverage that he got in smaller publications. Otherwise, I probably he wouldn't have been on my radar.
1: So, I mean, just hearing how microjournalists, you know, became a Discovery Channel for you. I mean, just sort of speaks to the importance of the entire ecosystem and how it feeds off one another. So, I really appreciate that, Lolly. Thank you for joining us today. If there's one thing you would want to leave our audience with, what would it be?
2: You know, one of the tricks that we use as journalists, Daniel again, was to turn to the hyper-local media and see how things were being covered. That's how we uh, came to find sources and, again, came to understand the issues. So if I had to leave with one thing, I would hope that the listeners will also begin to use that as a tool, that when you see um, stories that are being covered by WBEC or the Chicago Sun-Times or the Chicago Tribune, take that extra step to see how it's also being covered by the Chicago Defender or La Raza or Cicero Independiente or even the tribe so that you can get a really uh, full and broad uh, view of how our communities are being covered and what the issues are. Uh, most recently, the tribe did um, some coverage of what the change, uh, the name change of DuSable Drive means to residents and their take and The perspective that they were able to gather from residents on the ground really differed from what we read in the mainstream media. And so it's always worth really uh, broadening your media appetite and paying attention to what the the local guys are doing, not just the, the national picture.
1: Such important advice. Thank you so much, Lolly, for being with us. Please keep up the great work. Thank you. Building Collective Power Strategy supports community center platforms that allow the authentic narratives of communities to emerge and be amplified, not just in neighborhoods but across the city. These media platforms, likewise, bring vital information into communities to inform their agenda setting. Over the past 18 months, community center media filled a critical void, telling the stories of what's happened in our communities. To tell us more about this work and its impact, I have with me Morgan Johnson, co-founder of The Tribe, an online news and information platform for Black Chicago. And with her, I have Jesus de Toro, who leads La Raza, Chicago's leading Spanish-language newspaper. Morgan, I want to begin with you. I would love for you to speak to how media serves to connect people and communities.
3: Oh, absolutely. Media messaging narratives are so important. I like to always say like media helps shape the minds of the masses. I mean, it sounds manipulative because, you know, sometimes it very much is. Whether it's talking about like, yes, we can. And that like bringing people together to follow and support a political candidate or whether the narrative is fake news. Um, if something strikes a chord with people, if a narrative touches people, it helps shape their mind. It helps then shape policies even. So that's why we say that the tribe's mission is to reshape the narrative, because right now the dominant narrative, we feel, of Black Chicago is about gun violence. It doesn't really show the multifaceted essence of who Black people are in the city or our contributions. And we feel like dominant narratives definitely help inform people and how they view themselves and, and their own power. We're here to empower people by reminding them of our history, our contributions, and all of the solutions to our problems, as well as diving into like the deep challenges that we face here in this city. But it's all about framing. Like how can we frame this issue in a way that we feel is productive and can foster important conversations that can spark change?
1: Thank you, Morgan. Hey I would love to hear you respond to that same question, particularly given that La Raza's been around since 1970. Do you still feel that Aranza is continuously sort of reframing a, a, a more accurate narrative about Chicago's Latino Latina community? Well uh,
4: Well, yes. Uh, thank you for having me in this conversation, and yes, I, I believe that uh, the Latinx Hispanic community here in Chicago is very dynamic, and also the times has been changing. The context is changing. And La Raza has been publishing since 1970, uh, and for more than 50 years, we have been empowering, informing, of course, and defending our community in many ways, you know, with with news and information, but also, I believe, with something which is very important, which is the the sense of our identity, our culture, our traditions, as Hispanics from many Latin American countries, and, and Spain, too, uh, are important and are a crucial component of America. And in that sense, the Rasa has been always, you know, part of offering our communities the information they need to defend and preserve our heritage. And in the recent times, unfortunately, uh, we have been subjected also to, to attacks from, that say that our communities are just uh, part of the, uh, you know, rapists, gangs, And everything that unfortunately exists but that is not the representation of our community in the same sense that gun violence is not the representation of the african-american community we are both rich diverse and thriving communities we showcase the the success the ingenuity and the resilience of our community and during 2020 with the pandemic and still during this year too we covered that because uh, our community needed of course a lot of information in Spanish about mitigation prevention and now about vaccination and and all the health issues that we are facing uh, and we provided that and also we we try to keep you know showcasing how our businesses our organizations institutions nonprofits uh, and we ourselves uh, you know are are fighting for keep doing our work to keep doing our mission which at the end is empowering our community and defending our traditions because we believe the all of that is a crucial component of America and, and having a community which is aware of their rights, that fights for their rights.
1: The pandemic revealed how information itself is a commodity. Not having access to information can be life-threatening. As media platforms that serve specific communities in the Chicago region. I would love for you both to share examples of how your coverage of the pandemic um, filled a gap that was left by the rest of the media ecosystem. Morgan?
3: Sure. Um, The Tribe did a story last year called A West Side House Party Exposes the Disconnect Between Young Black Residents, Chicago Officials, and the news during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we covered a story about uh, a house party that had went viral where people were packed into a house on the West Side and TMZ was talking about it. And the narrative was kind of like, look at all these young, irresponsible Black kids not taking the pandemic seriously. And we took that narrative and said, wow, this is not very productive. What can we do? Who do we need to bring to the table? And we immediately thought about what we wanted the impact to be. And we wanted the impact would be for the news outlets and for government officials to think about how they were getting this information out to black communities that are often forgotten. So we brought all those people to the table and included them in this story, including some of the young people who were at the party who would explain why they would have gathered in this space during a pandemic. And we learned that they were gathering because they were grieving a friend who had passed away. And they didn't understand how devastating coronavirus could be compared to their daily life of hardship and devastation on the west side of Chicago. We saw um, Mayor Lightfoot put together a task force of people, Black folks, Black officials, to address this problem and get information out to Black communities, such as Galewood um, on the West Side. So uh, we also started live tweeting. The, the daily press conferences that were happening because we noticed that our audience was having fatigue and not clicking and reading on our stories. So we thought, let's just bring this information to social media where people are so they could be informed. So we really had to change what we were doing to make sure that this critical public health information was reaching who it needed to reach.
1: Jesus, do you have a similar example of how La Raza filled an information gap for your audience during the pandemic?
4: Uh, yes, because uh, the language barrier has been important. There was a lack of Spanish information in regards of the pandemic prevention. Uh, to have the knowledge to understand the dangers of this kind of meetings, for example, the the use of masks, the social distancing, the all the measures that are needed to prevent the, the infection... We didn't have information enough in Spanish, and we provide that. But also, uh, we did several stories that, you know, focus on vulnerable communities. Uh, for example, essential workers in uh, in, in our communities were uh, forgotten in some ways because uh, they were not receiving any kind of support. Uh, they were not, uh, for example, receiving if they get unemployed any kind of support from the federal government because many of them are undocumented. We inform about that and we provide options that organizations and other entities are are giving to them. And also, for example, we focus on on communities and uh, uh, aspects of them that were not very visible. We did several stories about uh, street vendors. In In the Hispanic tradition, the street vendors are a very important part because they it's part of the tradition, of course, but they also, you know, provide a service that is very relevant. Because when you need to go to work at 5 a.m. in the morning, maybe the street vendor is going to provide your breakfast, no? The the, the main meal that you're going to have during the first part of the day, and also there are uh, many people that uh, when they get unemployed, they or or their wages were reduced, they you know uh, start selling food or other uh, uh, things on the streets as a means for survival. And we we did several stories to say, first, they are vulnerable, they don't have PPP, they are not getting any support from other entities. But also, at the same time, there are organizations that are helping them, and they are helping themselves. For example, they created a cooperative to have a common kitchen to produce and pack their food, and that is important. Uh, because that showcased that, of course, the times were hard, but the organization that the community uh, is is having, and the, the the empowerment that they are, you know, themselves getting from their efforts are are important. And then we showcase that, and I believe that is something that is not, you know, uh, documented or, or or shown in other media.
1: Well, first of all, thank you both for joining us today. Your work is absolutely essential. Thank you very much. Civic change requires residents to have trust in one another. Part of the process of building trust involves authentically reflecting the truth of communities. The Building Collective Power Strategy aims to create the conditions to tell the human story, especially stories within Black and Brown communities. Joining me now is Tanika Lewis-Johnson, the self-described social justice artist, civic storyteller, photographer, and creator of the famed Folded Map Project. Tanika, thank you for being with us.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Tanika, in your work, you capture human stories that compel people to address tough issues your work, for me, feels strikingly honest. It feels more honest than anyone I've witnessed. And it reflects, quite frankly, the traditions of folks like Gordon Parks and Charlene hunter gault I want to begin with you sort of sharing with us, how do you create the conditions for people to be trustful of you? What level of trust is required to capture the honesty that you capture in your work?
5: Thank you for that question, because my projects, especially Folded Map, focus on the many ways in which segregation is perpetuated and then the following byproducts of segregation, the stereotypes, the misperceptions of neighborhoods. In order to allow people to be honest about what they may have said, what they have believed about certain neighborhoods, You have to create a space where you're not attacking an individual for sharing honesty that might demonstrate exactly the point of us talking about it, stereotypes, racism. And in order to do that, you have to allow people to understand we all have been programmed to believe certain things that we don't necessarily have immediate experience with. We all are operating in a system of segregation and systemic racism that we did not create. Yes, some people are benefiting from that. Others are not, but we didn't create it. So in order for us to dismantle it, we have to be honest about how it's personally impacted us how it's made us believe certain things. And in order to dismantle it, you have to admit and be honest about what stereotypes you've decided to believe, or you've been programmed to believe areas, neighborhoods that you've been taught to believe certain things about. And so that's one of the ways in which I kind of cultivate a space for these kinds of discussions is letting all of the participants know we need brutal honesty in order to truly understand all of the ways in which we need to attack systemic racism and how it's penetrated our everyday lives in ways that we don't even think about. A young white woman clutching her purse because she's walking past a Black boy. If you're a white woman who has done that, let's, let's create the space for you to say that. And let's talk about how did you get to that point? Let's also create the space for the young Black boy to say, yeah, um, that happens to me. And it does hurt me. It does make me mad. So that's been one of the key elements is just starting from the point of let's not blame ourselves. We're all operating in it. We did not create it. But we can be honest enough about how it's impacted us. So we
1: can solve it. I would love for you to share with me like an example, going back to Folder Map for a moment, of how when you pair the relatively wealthy sort of north side homeowner with their map twin on the south side and they have that moment of connection, it becomes honest. Have you witnessed the, the relationships deepening over time and that relationship leading to some type of collective action among those two groups?
5: Oh, gosh, yes. Um, as a matter of fact, the first MAP twins in my project, um, Edgewater Northside residents, Wade and his wife, Jennifer, and their Inglewood MAP twin, Nanette, um, they were the first first people involved in my project, and they met each other in 2017. Today, they have started a small organization called Inglewood Renaissance that started last year with them expanding my project to include block twins. They decided to introduce their neighbors on their block to each other. This is something that was not part of my project. It's not anything I could have envisioned would happen, but it's something they created based off of them continuing their friendship, ultimately. They've known each other for since 2017 at this point. So they're actually friends. And you know, it started because we didn't have the conversation initially of, so how is segregation impacting you all? It was literally them agreeing to meet each other only just to have a conversation with someone who lived on the north side, on the south side in a neighborhood that if you were to fold Chicago's map would touch each other. So they just asked, answered questions about lifestyle. Just how do you feel about your neighborhood? Where's your place of peace? How much does your house cost? Is there anything you would change about your neighborhood? listening to each other answer those questions, they were able to find points of shared interest and their friendship grew. And so now they have this larger group of people who want to have this discussion, expand their own world experience that's facilitated through their relationship with each other. Um, So that's one of the, the most outstanding byproducts of Folded Map
1: as a social justice artist, someone who's created art and media to, again, lift up important issues, connect people. What's next for you?
5: Uh, What's next? Well, the project that I am working on now is called Inequity for Sale. And it is a project that is going deeper into the built environment. So instead of conceptually folding Chicago's map, having individuals meet, um, I'm actually going to be creating landmarkers for homes in Greater Inglewood that were sold to would-be Black homeowners in the 50s and 60s on the discriminatory housing practice of land sale contracts. It's a discriminatory housing practice that ultimately led to Many black homeowners not knowing they didn't own their home. And ultimately, some lost their homes, a lot of them. And specifically in Chicago, there were neighborhoods that were targeted the neighborhoods that were redlined, and then the neighborhoods that were targeted with this specific practice. And uh, Greater Inglewood was one of them. My next project highlights homes that are still existing, still standing, that were part of this period of of plunder in Chicago, and ultimately legalized theft. And so I wanted to use my home neighborhood because it is um, not only the site of this issue, of this historic crime, ultimately, but it is also the neighborhood that everyone uses a poster child for everything wrong in Chicago. So for people to understand how these systemic racist injustices, specifically through housing, translate to how a neighborhood is today. I felt it was important for people to know this history, that in this neighborhood that you all believe to be so horrible, this is what happened to it. This is why this neighborhood has gotten to this point. Because wealth, hope, home ownership was literally extracted from this neighborhood.
1: That's a fascinating idea. Quickly, I would love for you to just share with the audience, as one sees these markers and learns this history and can bear witness to it, are there specific actions you want to motivate? What's the follow-on, if you will?
5: Always the most immediate action is to reflect. One, to just open your mind up to receiving this information. And and that's also part of... uh, How I create transparency and honesty, uh, the space for people to be honest about these issues, because you just have to be open to the fact that this did happen. But for others who are more inspired to want to do something, another phase of the project is for me to be identifying the beneficiaries of the land sale contracts. Some of the businesses, some of the individuals um, who were investors, bankers, doctors, they they went on with the money that they made from these discriminatory housing practices to start businesses. Those businesses have grown and turned into other businesses. So uh, one of the goals of the project is to identify one of those businesses and to ultimately put a landmarker there or to raise awareness about this business so that people can advocate for some kind of redress. I don't like to use the word reparations because people feel just a very specific way when you say it. They can only imagine it one way. But bringing this crime to justice by advocating for it to, one, be recognized by the larger Chicago public, but also to hold a business accountable, a business that literally benefited from the wealth that the was stolen from Black homeowners who, God, can you imagine, migrated north, saving their money. They did have money. Everyone wasn't poor. They saved their money to get a home, and they were lied to. They didn't even own that home. And then to lose it? So, you know, it's a crime that has to be brought to justice. So for those who are interested in participating in the action aspect of this project. Merely just sharing the information and advocating for our new city council's reparations subcommittee. Uh, Starting to get involved with that subcommittee uh, is is something that I would say that people interested in this project should should start to do.
1: What I appreciate about your work is that it's about discovery and it's about discovering the truth and being honest about that process and then creating the conditions for the truth to drive public discourse.
5: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Lolly Bowieen, Morgan Johnson, Jesus de Toro, and Tonika Johnson. You each make our city's residents more informed, more aware, and prepared to connect with one another in the public square. And thank you for listening. My hope is that this conversation inspires you to consume and support more hyperlocal media serving this region. They are our neighbors and they are committed to honestly reflecting Chicago's complicated story. And in the words of famed journalist Ida B. Wells, the people must know before they can act. And there is no educator to compare with the press. Thank you.